Yeah, welcome to Cinelit. We are back again. Uh, my name is Adam Marsh and I am joined by Cinelit's resident expert, Daryl Buxton. How are you, Daryl? I'm fine, Adam. Hi, everyone. Hi to all the listeners and uh, looking forward to today. Okay, so today we're going to do another one of our Five Reasons to Love podcasts that we started with Brian Trenchard-Smith a few weeks ago. We've carried on and did Five Reasons to Love RKO and today we are doing it one of your selections, Daryl, Mr. Julian Temple. That's right, Adam. Yeah. As you'll see, he's a filmmaker who doesn't really fit into that easy sort of bracket. You know, it's difficult to pick five films because his work overlaps so much. There's so much crossover in there and um, so many repeated themes and so on. So we'll bring all this out as we speak. His career in movies is what we're generally going to be talking about today. But obviously, he was a, a very influential uh, music video director. So, yeah, he, he he was constantly on people's TV screens throughout the 1980s and 90s without people really even knowing it in many ways. So where do you want to start, Dow? Do you want to start at the beginning? Uh, I, th- I think we'll we'll go through sort of chronologically, I think, Adam, and um, uh, kick off with the great rock and roll swindle. Obviously, I'm, I'm a wee baby, Daryl. I'm a wee baby in this world. And I'm I'm an I'm an old punk, so. Well, I was born in 1976, so um, <laughs> right in the middle of this being filmed, it's not something I grew up with. Punk, it was it was always something that was a historical thing. It was something in the past for me. So when I watched the Great Rock and Roll Swindle, all I could think about was like, how could anyone take this seriously? to the point where he had to go and film a documentary, The Filth and the Fury, 30 years later, to, to put the band's point of view across. This, this film doesn't, doesn't appear to be serious to me. No. Uh, I, I was looking up some stuff on online um, over the weekend, and uh, there's a, a poster called York Chaser on the IMDb, who posted in 2005 uh, about Great Rock and Roll Swindle. This this movie should come as a double pack with the filth and the fury, so we'll talk a little about the whole process of making great rock and roll swindle and how it all came about um, as we go. A little bit of uh, history first of all. I mean, the first thing to say is that um, punk movies. I I taught a course at Quad uh, three or four years ago on punk rock cinema, and the thing that I told my uh, my class then was that. Um, most of the films that I was showing sort of came along in the early 80s. You know, there, was, there wasn't really anybody sort of documenting punk as it happened and getting the films out into the cinema. You've got people like Don Letts and uh, Wolfgang Bald who were, who were sort of filming the, the London scene as it occurred, but they were doing it on a sort of amateur basis and even their footage didn't really get seen until some years later. And as always with the film business, as we've said during other podcasts, we, we said this about the BMX craze um, when we were talking about Brian Trenchard-Smith, you know, a, a trend happens, the movies dive in to try and capture it, and it takes them three years, you know. So uh, uh, so that's part of what happened with the great rock and roll swindle. The the project actually started in, you know, as as the Pistols were sort of at their peak, Malcolm McLaren, their, their um, sort of shady manager, came up with the idea of, you know, let's, let's make a movie. And the first person or the first team that he hired were... Um, an old pal of quads, uh, Michael Armstrong, who who came as a guest 
to one of our festivals a few years ago. And Michael and the horror movie director, Pete Walker, who'd made a, a series of, of savage, um, terrifying films in the mid-70s, Pete and Mike were hired to um, concoct a Pistols movie. And Mike wrote a script called The Star is Dead, which you can now buy in paperback form. You can actually read, read his script. And Pete Walker was going to direct this. And it had it would have had the pistols playing themselves or sort of, you know, cartoony, thinly veiled um, versions of themselves. Well, didn't, didn't McLaren say that he wanted it to be like um, the Sex Pistols version of A Hard Day's Night? He did. And what Michael did in response to that was he made a film called Eskimo Nell a few years earlier, which was yeah. it, it's often cited as being the very best of the British sex comedies of the 70s. Now, to be the best British sex comedy of the 70s might not sound like uh, um, <laughs> something you want to aspire to, but people do say it is the best one. It does sound like it's damning with faint praise, doesn't it? <laughs> it, is, it is a little, yeah. But um, I think people enjoy Eskimo Nell because it takes a dig at the film business. It's a sex comedy about making a sex comedy. And what Michael did with his Pistols film, he wrote a, uh, he wrote a script about the Sex Pistols making a movie. And he basically took the plot of Eskimo Nell, which is various backers come in, a bit like the producers, that sort of thing, you know, they, they try and get different backers to fund the film and they all come in, they've all got their own idea about what the film should be. And the pistols are sort of caught up in the middle of all this. And the movie's going to be a, a Musketeers film. So, uh, you know, try, try and imagine that. Although that, that would rather fit in with um, Julian Temple's whole approach to, to punk and to, to music of that era, which is he, he often looks at the subjects of his films as though they are making history and he and he compares that to historical events from the past and uh, often puts old movie footage or even recreates vivid scenes from history and sort of edits those into his films so you'll get a shot of the pistols or you'll get joe strummer or you'll get dr fieldwood or whoever he's making a film about and you'll cut to Laurence Olivier and Richard III, or you'll cut to um, a recreation of, of um, a, a sort of peasant's revolt or something, you know. And, and so I, I, I can see that whole sort of combo of the musketeers and the pistols maybe in a funny way appealing to Julian. And I, I, I wonder if he ever read uh, Michael's script. But that movie never happened. And then Malcolm McLaren... Uh, dived in and obviously was thinking, what can I do that will be the most controversial thing? And uh, hired Russ Mayer. <laughs> he tried the British sex movie guys and he then went to get the, the equivalent in America. But again, that was sort of uh, one day shooting and then Mayer and, and McLaren fell out and Russ, Russ went back to America. And so next up was Julian himself. He'd made a documentary called The Sex Pistols Number One, which was seemed to be a sort of personal art project that he, he was doing in the 70s. He'd got footage of the pistols from, from uh, uh, TV news coverage and so on. And he'd got a bit of live footage as well and interviews and things like that. And he, he threw it all together as a collage, as a little short film. And obviously McLaren and, and the, 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 the uh, sort of pistols entourage got wind of this. And... In the light of losing Pete Walker and losing Russ Mayer, they, um, they 
then thought, hey, maybe this kid can do something, you know, so they hired Julian. And I think Malcolm probably saw him as being quite a malleable, sort of easy to manipulate uh, sort of person. And the film took until 1980 to come out. The Pistols had been finished for almost three years by then. And the movie came out and it did okay at the box office, but uh, but yeah, it, it didn't have the impact that it would have done had it come out two years earlier. But uh, but yeah, it's an interesting document. It's fascinating to watch in tandem with Filth and the Fury, which, as you say, Adam, was was sort of made almost as a sort of rejoinder, you know, as as a, as a means of getting the pistols to have their say. Because Johnny Rotten took no part in the uh, in the great rock and roll swindle. And he's he's billed in the credits, because he's, he's used in sort of film footage and so on, he's billed simply as the collaborator. They don't even use his name. They don't call him Rotten. They don't call him John Lydon. He's the collaborator. Those that have seen the film will know it's a mixture, a bit like Julian's uh, Sex Pistols number one. It's a mixture of uh, film footage. You get things like the Bill Grundy interview on there, uh, live concert footage, shots of uh, the Pistols doing their Jubilee boat trip down the River Thames and so on. In typical Julian style, there's there's things cut in about what else is going on in Brit- uh, in and around Britain at that same time. So uh, as as you get in all of Julian's rock documentaries, there's all this footage of um, sort of strikes and police brutality and uh, whoever the politicians were at the time. Margaret Thatcher was just sort of starting to rise to power. So it's this whole interesting little collage. And then interspersed in with that, you've got this character in a gimp mask who's sort of talking in McLaren's voice. I, I, I've no idea who's actually in the in the sort of S&M gear, you know. But uh, And they're, they're reading out McLaren's... Um, sort of rules of, of how to create chaos in the pop industry. And this this is the side that um, John Lydon took offence to because the, the, the film depicts the Pistols as being very much a McLaren creation and very much his puppets. And as, as any fan knows, they were far from that. Well, that, that was that was kind of like a, a like a little mini narrative in pop music around that period, wasn't it? The Svengali sort of like the you know the, the the person behind it all creating these bands, I guess from like the Monkeys onwards, you know. Yeah, it had been the case really in Britain since the early sixties. You'd have sure. people like Larry Palms and then famously Brian Epstein with the Beatles, you know. But I think Epstein with the Beatles is an interesting sort of precursor to McLaren and the Pistols because Epstein couldn't tell. John Lennon or George Harrison or Paul or Ringo, what to do? You know, he, he might have tried and he might have thought he was in charge, but uh, I, you, you're not going to tell John Lennon, do this, do that, go there, go there, are you? You know, and it was the same, I think, with McLaren and the Pistols, a similar sort of relationship where one guy thought he was in charge and the band knew they were in charge. Mm. It reminded me, as I, as I was watching, it reminded me of Frank Zappa's 200 Motels. As I was watching it, in the sort of like shambolic, thrown together kind of way. Yeah, very, very free form, and anything goes, and you don't know what's coming next. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, what struck me as well is like it had the unfortunate situation is like possibly the least charismatic pistol being heavily involved in in in, in yeah. the production. You know, you've lost yeah. Johnny Rotten. Sid Vicious, for all his faults, was had had something of a charisma about him. Yeah, and yet you've got you've got the um, Steve Jones traipsing around the world being the being the focal <laughs> character. It's it's not the ideal, is it? 
Not at all. Not at all. No. We do get in, we do get um, some interesting cameos and interesting like little sidelines, like the whole bit in Brazil with Ronnie Biggs. Yeah, yeah. It's just such an unusual thing. Well, that was weird at the time because we knew that Leiden had had, had quit after their their gig in San Francisco. You know, we we weren't getting news back then as you do now, sort of instantly online. You know, you were sort of waiting to read it in the music papers, and I I remember picking up NME or Record Mirror one day in, in sort of mid-1979 and there's an ad for a new Sex Pistols single and I'd got no idea that this was on the way and they were touting this singer called Ronnie Rotten and I thought what on earth is this and uh, gradually we, we, we sort of found out that all right, Ron, Ronnie Biggs has joined the Sex, the sex Pistols. You know, they've they've been out to Brazil and they've 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 done this arrangement with him, and he's now their their lead vocalist on this this one off single. So yeah, very very strange. And 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 you've got to remember that we you know news didn't travel fast in those days, so uh, it was all very very odd at the time. And the film's a nice sort of document of that. Yeah, it does at least capture that that whole bizarre story but uh, but by focusing on stuff like that rather than the genuine history of the band and and the excitement of of you know their their emergence and the, the, those killer singles that they were bringing out one after the other the, the film sort of misses out on all that and it, it came along three years too late and it feels like it well one of the things that I, I, was, I was watching it was like there's a wealth of performance footage in it as well which yeah, must yeah. have been exciting at the time because you didn't get like like you said you, you took years for things to come around you're you're waiting for the press you didn't have music television you didn't have avenues for live performance of uh, 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 of bands at that time readily available don't forget you could barely even if you'd been around in 77 or or sort of early 78 you could you barely got a chance to see the pistols live because everybody banned them so you you say that daryl but nearly every punk i've ever met i've ever met went to that first sex pistols gig (laughs) so you know it must have been a seventeen thousand seat venue because literally everyone i know said they were there yeah, they, they they say they say it was at the one hundred club. I, I think it must have been at Wembley Stadium, really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's, but, that, but that must have been an exciting thing to see that footage. Yeah, I think that was the one thing that appealed to to the the hardcore fans, you know, and and did they they did sort of accept the movie because hey, at least at least it's got the Jubilee boat footage, at least it's got some live footage from uh, uh, gigs at the Roxy and places like that. So uh, and even though Johnny Rotten's not building the credits, we are getting to see him on screen, and we're getting to see him in his prime, whereas we're getting to see Steve Jones as this sort of, uh, you know, slightly dodgy, slightly bloated figure who's who's sort of losing it a bit, you know. And, and uh, um, But we've, we've got Rotten there and we've got the rest of the band there absolutely in their prime, you know. And uh, I, I wonder what McLaren's take on that was, whether he, he sort of thought, well... You know, we've we've got to have this footage in, otherwise it's not a Pistols movie. But I, I I bet he sort of rankled a bit at that. You know, I bet there were sort of chats with Julian Temple saying, "Can you focus a bit more on on Steve and Paul and what's happening now?" McLaren put himself in a very weird position with that film. It must it must have killed him to know that the the the, the best bits of the movie were the bits where John Lydon's up front doing his stuff. 
well, yeah, but it's, it's you can't hide that. <laughs> you know what I mean, sure, you can't sure. you can't hide that in, in the footage. It's there. You know the the charisma, the performances that it's just it's just there. McLaren obviously trying to rewrite history a little bit and create his own little mythology over his role in things. Yeah, which was his whole thing, you know, that was yeah. that was how, how he sort of lived his life. What what I like about the film is that, and again, I don't know whether this was Malcolm's idea or Julian's or a mixture of the two, but to get people uh, doing little cameos, like Jess Conrad is in there, Liz Fraser, who starred in a few of those sex movies, yeah. I was about to mention Liz Fraser, because it's like, you can plot the history of British film from the 1960s through to the 80s, through Liz Fraser. Oh, she yeah, She crops yeah. up in all kinds of stuff. She was one of those people, a, a, a bit like Adrian Corrie, you know, and Adrian Poster, the two Adrians. They, they seem to be in everything, going, going back years and years and years, you know. You, you watch a film from the early 60s or you watch something from the sort of mid to late 80s and, and Liz is likely to turn up in it, you know, and she's always good and she always plays a very similar sort of character uh, but she's usually the if, if not the best thing in the movie she's usually the best thing in the scenes that she's in you know she's yeah. a real real scene stealer but talking of scene stealers you've got Irene Handel in there as well who's who's the ultimate of, of that type of British actress I think yeah and had been doing it for, for decades longer even than Liz Fraser and of course to, to link it all in with the whole the, the sex film origins of, of the piece you've got Mary Millington in there who, who again she she was dead by the time this came out so an, another yeah. mark of just how late this 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 was how delayed it was and what a what a sort of troubled and, and disastrous production it was I suppose we're lucky in a way that the film as, as we see it, is, is such a fascinating document in many ways because it, it was a complete mess. The, the one thing I would say, though, is anyone who wants a film about the history of the Sex Pistols, don't go near this because it, it, is, it is almost complete fabrication. It is Malcolm's side of the story, and that guy on YouTube on the IMDb was was absolutely right. There are two sides to this story. You you mentioned Sid uh, Adam, and uh, the Filth and the Fury has clips from a really lucid and very funny sort of interview with Sid. He's sitting on a jet deck chair in a London park, smoking a fag, and um, talking to camera, and he's great. You know, this is this is the Sid that you you can understand why John Lydon would be best mates with this guy. You know, he's sarcastic, he's funny, he's witty. And and it's it's just a fantastic little five minutes that appears in the filth and the fury, and and contrast that with the the stuff that you've seen in films like DOA from later on, where he and Nancy Spungen are sort of rolling about on a bed, and and um, you know they're talking about shooting up and so on, and and uh, and. I mean, in, in that interview in DOA, the American film, Sid actually falls asleep on camera. He just yeah. passes out on camera and Nancy's sort of whinging at him. Oh, Sid, wake up, man. And, and, and contrast that with the deck chair interview in Filth and the Fury. It's, it's two different people. And it's, not, it's no surprise. I mean, the, the big, big talking point of Filth and the Fury was um, Johnny Rotten breaking down on camera and crying his eyes out as he talks about Sid. And when you watch that interview, you can see why, because you can see what he lost. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's like, for, for as much as, as that period, it was about creating characters 
I guess, the, the character of Johnny Rotten, the character of the Sex Pistols. And you do forget that they were, they were, they were real human beings as well. And Sid became that sort of like, well, he was the, the waste of wastrel junkie who died tragically and murdered his girlfriend. You know, it's, it, it, yeah. it's a sad ending to that story. But it also, you don't get the nuance when you just read the headlines like that. No, which no. Filth and the Fury brought the nuance to it. Yeah. And there's a real a real sense of what might have been as well. You know, you see Sid being jokey, funny, looking great. You know, um, I'm, I'm sure he was taking drugs at the time. We see him smoking the cigarette, but uh, and he talks a little bit about drugs in that interview. But you can tell that he's he's you know he's he's not hooked on heroin at the point of this interview. And there's just this such a sad sense. I mean, the, the guy's sort of 19 or 20 or something at the time he's being filmed. And you just think, really, you know, we're getting a picture there of what could have been, you know, mm. and, and, and what was lost. He, 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 was never, he was never the most creative talent. But Sid sort of became the face of the Pistols for a while. And, and he had his own little cult following, which persists to this day, I think. And again, I think that's a little distorted by. Great rock and roll swindle. That's that's one of the culprits that, that has led to the sort of cult of Sid, I think. So uh, let's let's move on from the Sex Pistols because um, he didn't work with just one band throughout his career. This this kind of kickstarted uh, Julian Temple into doing music videos, uh, for which yeah, he would yeah. do a hell of a lot for artists like uh, Gary Newman, uh, yeah. Judas Priest, The Kinks. Uh, ABC, Depeche Mode, Dex's Midnight Runners, The Rolling Stones, uh, Sade, Billy Idol, Janet Jackson, Neil Young, Kenny Rogers, <laughs> Tom Petty, Swing Out Sister, Whitney Houston, Brian Adams. He did the. Yeah, I, you're, I, you're, I, just, you're just saying names now, Adam. <laughs> yeah, but the one that we're going to talk about, they worked with, uh, was David Bowie. Yeah, yeah. And particularly, we're going to talk about his extended music pop promo uh jazz in for blue jean now daryl you're you're not much of a bowie fan are you daryl i'm i'm not no no uh yeah i've i've only only been buying his stuff since 1974 you know and uh, diamond dogs was the first album i ever bought and uh david live was the second album i ever bought and i could go on but yeah. <laughs> so so you're coming at this from a massive Bowie fan angle. Interestingly, Bowie was probably at the lowest point of his career at this time. He, in 1984, he released the album Tonight, which I, I think most Bowie fans would agree is pretty dire. You know, well, and, uh, I, went through a, I went through a period recently of re-listening to all of eight, Bowie's 80s stuff, because he did that big box set of, of his 80s collection. Yes, yeah. thing. And he was known for reinventing himself throughout his career. The Thin White Duke, you know, the Ziggy Stardust, the Lad Insane, all these kind of reinventions they went through throughout his throughout his career. And in Jazzing for Blue Jean, it's like he's been reincarnated as a bumbling sitcom rom com um, <laughs> hero. What is going on in this film? He's like, he's I, like I know, um, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, um, he's like Michael, he's like Michael Crawford from Some Mothers Do Have in this. Oh yeah, the early yeah. part. Yeah, I think Bowie's Bowie's sense of humour was always a very, very broad and very strange. He 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 loved 
puns. You know, for instance, when when the when you two recorded an album called Axon Baby, uh, Tin Machine did their live album and called it Oi Vey Baby. So, uh, and that was that's Bowie's idea of a joke. You know, it's 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 not funny at all. But but you know. When, when you're sitting backstage with the band and having a beer after a gig and someone comes up with that, it's probably the most hilarious thing in the world. And a lot of people would ditch things like that and ridiculous puns that you would put into lyrics and things, things that other people might sort of discard and throw away after they laughed at it once, you know. He'd actually put on the front of an album. And so, yeah, he, he was always a bit strange when it came to humour and very broad. And I think that sort of feeds into to jazzing for Blue Keen. That appears to be like what he was going for in the 80s. He seemed to be trying yeah. to broaden out his audience anyway. What's interesting is I think Bowie fans sort of reacted a little bit against that because there was this sort of suggestion, a little bit of, of sellout, oh, you've, you've signed you've signed a, a contract with a big record company, although he'd been, he'd been with RCA before, you know, mm-hmm. Elvis's label, so you can't really throw that accusation at him. But I think there was, you know, punks, punks and sort of uh, even people on the sort of new romantic scene at the time because that, that had sort of come up come up from grassroots and they'd all been ex-punks anyway there was this big thing about artists selling out at the time and 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 signing to major labels and we we hated it when that happened when one of your favorite bands signed to a proper record company it was like oh they're finished they're, they're, you know all the creativity's gone out and so we sort of we threw that at bowie a little bit you know and uh, you almost couldn't because let's dance was such a fantastic album that it didn't seem to fit that pattern of you know artist signs big deal and then makes terrible lp but uh, mm. we all thought what's his new character going to be we've had aladdin sane and ziggy and all these other great characters you know what's he going to do next and uh, yeah jazzing for blue jean came along and and this this all sort of emerged out of Julian's uh, love of the music video as a new art form, and um, there weren't there weren't all that many people making videos at that time. You know, it was a brand new thing. MTV had started up, and they were desperate for product. And Julian was one of the first guys to sort of get in on it and say, hey, you know, I'm tailored for this. This is perfect for me to make little promo films. And of course, what he did was develop the form. He started making films, as you say, with people like ABC and sort of expanding the idea of what a pop video could be. Most people were just putting the band in front of a microphone, getting them to mind to their to their instruments and filming the song. You know, Julian and one or two other artists started putting sound effects and dialogue in and they'd have extra scenes at the start and at the end. And then the Blue Jean video comes along, the, the single from the Tonight album. They, they shot a conventional three-minute video for it, but then Julian expanded that into a 21-minute film that was used as a short film shown in cinemas. I saw it with the, the Company of Wolves in 1984. And it works as a little short story on, on, on its own. And as you say, Bowie plays this weird sort of sitcom type character, but he's also playing this sort of heightened version of himself, you know, a very unflattering portrait of a sort of big rock star. And um, and you've got these two David Bowies sort of vying against each other, both trying to get the girl. And Julian doing all kinds of flashy things in the video and making it into this great expansive uh, sort of 20-minute short film. Very, very impressive at the time. Yeah, no, I mean, it, 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 was, it was well regarded at the time. It won the Grammy for Best Video Short Form, as, the, as, the, as it was called then, Best Music Video, as it would later become. 
and you can see why because there was money thrown at it. It had a say, it had a story, it had all these things that you wouldn't, you weren't expecting from a, a pop video before. And obviously, you know, this is like '84, so you it was around the same time as things like the Michael Jackson uh, long form videos as well. So it was starting to become a, a, a thing. And like you said, like Junior Temple was right there in, in the middle of that. I must admit, I wasn't a big fan of this, to be honest with you, Daryl. I thought it was a bit hokey and a bit broad. And it, it, I don't know, I had, I had David Bowie playing some sort of like window cleaner painter at the start. Yeah, and he yeah. was like Jacko from Brushstrokes or something like that. They were like <laughs> it, it was like David Bowie doing Jacko from Brushstrokes. It was yeah, I'm, I'm not disagreeing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I, I, th- I think we we gave it a lot of leeway simply because it was so new and and so innovative. But uh, yeah, it's it's maybe not one that holds up to to repeat viewing and maybe doesn't age all that well. And Bowie Bowie doesn't look all that cool in it. But I, I don't think he wanted to. I think he's he's sort of playing around with his persona in it. He, he he didn't necessarily mix well with 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 comedy and humour, and I think Julian comes out of this rather better than Bowie does. But uh, um, but yeah, for its time, and if you put yourself back into 1984 and think of what else was around at the time, as you say, we'd had Thriller, but this was like the British answer to that, you know. And and I think it did it did impress in its own way, although yeah, it maybe doesn't hold up particularly well now. I suppose that brings us on to Absolute Beginners, which was uh, Julian's next step in his career. Yeah, Absolute Beginners. That's an interesting one. It's, um, it's, it's reputation tends to precede it, I think. We screened it at Quad last year. Yes, yeah, as, as part, part of the musical season. Yeah, That's yeah. right, yeah. So and we did, we did un- I, I wanted to show on un- different types of musicals uh, rather than you just a classic classic range. So we we got absolute beginners. We got 200 motels and things like that on there. Now this the reputation for this is that it brought down the studio and uh, nearly ruined the British film industry. Unfair? Fairly true, I think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and again, it's it's another instance of those that were there at the time have got a different sort of story to everyone else. And um, I'm I'm a person. I I pride myself on. If I don't like a movie, if I saw a film in sort of 1979 or 1990 or something and didn't like it, and I then revisit it 30 years later, I still tend not to like it. I, I don't change my mind or I'm pretty good at, at, at sort of uh, getting my opinion on a movie the first time I see it when it first comes out. Absolute Beginners is one of those rare occasions where I've changed my mind. It was it was almost written off before it was made. It was written off while it was shooting by by a certain breed of person, and that breed of person was the readers of NME. We NME readers were um, we were sort of up our own arses a bit at the time, you know. It was uh, there were certain bands you could like. It was so sort of blinkered, you know. And uh, and again, it was this business about if if they're on if they're releasing stuff on Rough Trade or Factory Records or Small Wonder or whatever, they're great, you know. If John Peel plays them, they're great. Anything else, we we despise, you know. And, and we we sort of liked Julian because he'd worked with the Pistols and he'd worked with Bowie, you know, and that gave him a lot of sort of a lot of leeway and a, a lot of credence with us. But uh, but. Then Absolute Beginners comes along. 
and it didn't have any reference points for that enemy generation. It was it was based on Colin McKinney's novel, which Paul Weller was was known to to like and had written a song called Absolute Beginners for the Jam, you know. And so again, there was a little uh, sense there of oh, Weller, Weller, Weller likes this novel, so it must be all right, you know. But Julian Temple hadn't really made a movie before. We'd seen his videos, and his videos seemed to be getting a little bit out of control by this point with things like uh, Blue Jean. And the British film industry was at a stage there where it was being talked up by everybody, and there seemed to be money around. But you could sort of sense that that it was a bit of a veneer that things were were one step away from coming crashing down, you know. And there was always this sense that Absolute Beginners might be the film that did that, even as it was being made. And we were getting reports that people like Sade, who we didn't like, were in it. You know, people like Slim Gayard, um, you know, old old jazz musicians like that were, were, were going to be part of it, who we didn't really know. Ray Davis was going to be in it, and we thought, oh, the, the, there wasn't a sort of cult of the kinks amongst our generation back then. And and we sort of wrote him off as well. And the worst the worst name for, for our generation was Patsy Kensit, who was the, the enemy of the enemy. You know, we, we, we just didn't take to her. You weren't all. Eighth Wonder fans then. <laughs> not at all, not at all. And then suddenly Julian throws her into the starring role of his movie, and it's like, this isn't going to be good, you know. And I, I went along to see it, and uh, I I have to say that, A, I despised it, but B, I think that was because I'd written it off already because of all the factors that I've just mentioned. And then C, when I caught up with the film again uh, about four or five years ago when it came out on Blu-ray and then seeing it again at Quad uh, last year, I loved it. And the difference, the two differences for me were, A, seeing Ray Davis and Lionel Blair and Slim Gayard and all of these people on screen, I, I now knew a bit more about them. I, I now loved Ray Davis I, I've got a lot of respect for people like Lionel Blair. You know, he, he was a bit of a joke figure in, in the mid-'80s, um, and I'd, I'd learned a lot more about what he meant to the British dance scene and all, all, the, all the people that he'd taught um, dance moves to and everything, you know. And, um, and I, I respected the, the era of 50s jazz a lot more than I did. I even liked Sade a lot more, you know. Um, and, and Patsy Kensit had, had sort of taken on this... this weird sort of sort of cult status by then you know um uh she'd had the connection with oasis and all of that you know and and um it 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 now seemed to be a different sort of melting pot seeing it in in the year 2016 or the year 2019 and the crucial thing for me is that back in the mid 80s i'd not seen films like beat girl and what a crazy world and Three Hats for Lisa, and these these great British pop musicals of the late 50s and early 60s, Expresso Bongo and things like that, you know. And I'd since caught up with all of these movies and loved them all and suddenly now realised where Julian had got a lot of his ideas from, you know, particularly Expresso Bongo. It's a very similar sort of film to that in terms of the way it, it looks at the cynical world of pop music and the cynical world of promotion of teenagers and 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 again 
the, the same sort of story that Julian had already told us in the great rock and roll swindle, you know, cynical <laughs> managers manipulate their young charges sort of thing. And right at the heart of that, you've got David Bowie as, as this manipulative background figure, Vendis Partners, dancing on a typewriter, singing Valare, you know, and, and uh, being being the puppet master. And yeah, I've I've changed my mind on absolute beginners. I I now see the British film tradition that it fits into. But none of us did at the time and we weren't encouraged to. And I think that was the film's failure. We were told to watch this film as a piece in itself. And it doesn't work as that. Where it does work is as part of a certain strata of British film history. I think. Well, I think one of the problems I had with it, it's not the problem. It's not the problem. Actually, it's not a problem. But it, it, I, when I screened this, I wanted to show an eighties musical, mm. and there isn't an eighties musical it for a decade. For, for 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 a decade, that was such about advancing visual music and music, the music video and the birth of MTV and all that kind of stuff. There really isn't something that captures that 80s vibe of, of what a musical from the 80s could be. Because a lot of yeah, the 80s yeah. stuff seems to be referenced in 50s and 60s. As I say, there was this crop of films around 1959, 1960, 61. Yeah. And, and Julian's done his version of that. And none of us knew at the time. We weren't told that. And we weren't able to see those films at the time. And that's what he was aiming at. He'd obviously seen all these movies. but. He, he didn't sort of present them to us. He just presented his own film to us and said, here's what I've done without giving us any reference points. Yeah. And, yeah, that's a brilliant point about it not being a film of its time because it isn't. But that seemed to be a trend in the 80s. There was a lot of, you know, like Roy Orbison was having a resurgence in his career in the 80s. Yeah. And it was like a lot of this, like, harking back to what was popular. Tiffany was was pop star, new pop star, singing a song from the 60s. You know what I mean? So yeah, there was a yeah. lot of that kind of 80s and the 50s and 60s being intertwined in some way, where the 80s never really had its own identity in some ways. This always happens in, in Britain, though, because in the early 70s, you know, glam, glam rock in the early 70s largely formed out of Mark Boland's love of... Chuck Berry in the 1950s. So there was a big rock and roll revival in Britain in sort of 1971, 72. And you got you got old rock and rollers coming over and touring over here. And uh, people like Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis were playing, you know. So it's, it seems to be part of the British psyche that we're always looking back 10 or 20 or 30 years. You know? we're, we're sort of doing it now in, in, in certain aspects. And yeah, absolute beginners... Uh, sort of fell foul of that in a way, but um, the the mistakes it made in doing that are now are now virtues, and I think they've become virtues because the audience have had a chance to sort of catch up and pick up on what Julian's references were. Mm. I think one of the other things that got, occurred to me as I was watching it was Julian's style of filmmaking. He's starting to become more set in stone here. Yeah, yeah. You, don't, you never get the feeling when you're watching a Julian Temple movie, particularly from the 80s, that you're watching real life. Mm, it's always, you yes. always feel like the characters are walking around in a set or, yeah, or yeah. inhabiting a world that's been created for your viewing pleasure, like Jazz in for Blue Jeans. He wants to enhance that. He wants to walk yeah. that and put that in your face. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, it's, yeah. It is, it is artifice, yeah, and he tells you it is. I mean, the, the massive set, the sort of Soho street set that they, they, they film on, 
is is a movie set, but what a movie set. That's what he's saying to you. Look at this. We're going around this corner now. This is amazing. This is massive. You know, look yeah. at where I'm taking my characters now. We've got a car driving down the set. And it's similar to what Coppola did with the one from the heart. You know, it's that type of filmmaking. It's putting that in your face. It's putting the make-believe up front and um, yeah. and then things like the the when Ray Davis does the, the brilliant song Quiet Life and it's all done on that set like the like the old Jerry Lewis set where it's all um different compartments and different rooms and the characters are walking up and down stairs and Julian just pulls his camera back and lets you look at the whole thing you know occasionally he'll focus or cut to one particular room or one particular um, little compartment of the set but then it'll cut again and you'll be seeing 20 rooms and characters doing the hoovering or walking up and down stairs or reading a newspaper or whatever and Ray Davis in the middle of it all dressed in in a sort of overall or sort of shabby looking uh, sort of brown long overcoat you know is singing this brilliant sort of plaintive song the, the whole thing's just magical. But again, it's magical because your attention is being drawn to the fact that it's a movie. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that would carry on in his career, yeah, yeah. particularly with his next film, I think. <laughs> uh, Definitely. Which we'll, on, Definitely. which we'll get on to in a moment. One of, the, one of the things that stood out to me was I didn't think the lead actor was right for the role, was good enough for the role, and that kind of let it down a little bit. I, I I agree, but sometimes that can work in a film's favour, and I think it does. To 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 give the film its due, all these years on, as I, as I'm now a fan of it, you know, I I think that the weakness of the lead actor, and you're 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 correct about that, but doesn't that serve to enhance the the, the plot idea about manipulation? And doesn't it make Bowie's character, who who's only on screen for a, a very short length of screen time? but it makes him look more uh, Mephistophelian. You know, it, it brings in this sort of Faustian element to it. And, and it's, very, it's very much how the relationship was between Larry Palms and his, his stable of musicians at the time, in 1959, in 1960. For all your bashing of poor Patsy Kensett, I think she's great in this. She's she's really good in it. I've I've grown to love her in this, and uh, I I think again it's because he's so weak. She really stands out as a vibrant, lively character, and she was when I saw the film in 1986. It's just I didn't want to know. I didn't yeah. want her to be good in it, you know. And now I accept that she is. She she is the life and soul of the movie, and that that has really come over in in recent viewings. So time's been very, very good to the film and to her, I think. Yeah, time has been good to this film. Time has been good for Patsy Kenzie. Not so good for Goldcrest Films, though. No, um, no, no. <laughs> this film led to the collapse of Goldcrest Films and sent Julian Temple scurrying back to America um, to do music videos and also do his next movie that we're going to talk about, Earth Girls Are Easy. Yeah, well, I think Julian was always one of the British filmmakers who had one eye on Hollywood. You can tell that from the way he stages his music videos and, and he stages Absolute Beginners, you know. He was he was obviously a director that always wanted to break into Hollywood. And was Earth Girls Are Easy the way to do it, Adam? Um, it was the 80s, man. It was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time, you know. It was like... Things that you pitch in any other decade would get you shown the door, but in the 80s, yeah, yeah. it was like, 
you got Booker Banzai in the 80s. You know, you got yeah, Howard the yeah, Duck in the yeah. 80s. You got Earth Girls <laughs> Are Easy in the 80s. Yeah, and it and it almost forms a trilogy with those two movies. You know, it's uh, it's just its own thing. You know, it's this weird, mad, colourful fantasy movie. I it's another film that I think has aged pretty well. Yeah, I, I agree. I think it, I think it taps into what well, when we said the last film wasn't very eighties for what you would expect from a nineteen eighty six musical. This. Now this has the eighties. It's the eighties. This is this is eighties. Nineteen eighty-eight. The movie. Yeah, it yeah. really, really is. Um, and I don't know whether that's as much to do with Julian Temple as it is to do with the production and uh, Julie Brown, who wrote it and starred in it, alongside um, uh, the duo of Gina Davis and Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, who who were Hollywood's golden couple at the time. They were certainly well, this is, uh, this had, is had already worked together on a couple of movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is. I think they did three or four films together. And this is. I think this is the last one, maybe. Yeah, they did uh, Transylvania Six Five Thousand, which is where they met, and yeah. um, and and the, the the most famous one, The Fly, which is their their classic. But they they're great in this. They they're really really good in this, and you can tell you know how they feel about each other, and they really come packaged as a couple. Even yeah. though the plot the plot of the film throws them together, you know, but but you can you can see there's a connection there and a chemistry. Yeah, it was great. I, I, I mean, I loved it. It was very eighties. It appealed to my eighties sense. What I love about the eighties. Uh, if you're going to do an eighties film, then you do an eighties film like this. You know, you're yeah. full out. Whether that will hit because it was too eighties at the time, and maybe it was just not what people wanted who knows yeah how do you think that now would, would translate to an audience watching it 30 years later I, I think people would love it now I think it's one of those films that actually if it was made today and it was we're making a movie that's like an 80s movie mm. they'd kind of make this movie now so in some ways yeah. it was ahead yeah. of its time by being so <laughs> on the ball for, for documenting the whole craziness of the 80s it is bang on with every eighties cliche you can think of is in there, and they're all done brilliantly. And they're 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 cliches for a reason. It's because they're good, you know. And and um, uh, yeah, it's 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 not a massively original film in that sense, but but it takes that unoriginality and really has fun with it. You know, it really plays with it. And uh, Julian Julian is not averse to throwing in a big a big. Uh, absolute beginners type musical number every now and then you know there's there's the great one in in the salon you know near the start and, and we uh, stop you there daryl it's not just the salon it's the curl up and die salon. curl up and die yes yeah Come on. you know when when a pun like that is in a film you don't ignore it daryl <laughs> How how perfect is that? And uh, I mean, for people who don't know the plot of Earth Girls Are Easy, you know, the title sort of tells you it's about aliens. You know, it's these three sort of furry aliens beam down to Earth in their in their little mini spaceship, which is so small it can fit into someone's swimming pool, and uh, not only someone's swimming pool, but Gina Davis's pool. <laughs> And she's going through a tough time with her, her partner and um, he's sort of playing away and having affairs all over the place. And she's looking for late 80s love. 
and these three furry aliens beam down from whichever planet they're from. One of them's red, one's blue, one's yellow, so you've got this explosion of colour. Their spaceship looks like the yellow submarine. As I say, it's tiny, it fits into the swimming pool, but they've got the power to expand and grow. They can grow to to human size. So uh, because Gina works in a salon, they take the aliens down there to curl up and die, and they give them a makeover. It's 1988, of course they do, you know. And they come out looking vaguely human, but still acting alien. One of them is, as well as Jeff Goldblum, you've got Damon Wayans in there, and you've got Jim Carrey in there in a very early role. Doesn't he come fully formed? He's already Jim Carrey. He's already got all the shtick and all the gurning and all the movement and and madness. He's, He's right there. Well, it's fascinating because I'm, I'm, I'm currently going through a Rodney Dangerfield period. I don't think anyone's ever said that out loud before. <laughs> I'm currently going through Rodney Dangerfield. I'm watching a lot of Rodney Dangerfield and I'm reading his autobiography. And in the early 80s, Jim Carrey opened for Rodney Dangerfield. And he was saying he was doing impressions at the time. And it was during the period he was switching from impressions to his own comedy was when, when Dangerfield had him on as, as, as his opening act. So, so he was he was performing in stand up and stuff like that, and he explodes on the scene in '88 in in this perfectly formed, like you say, perfectly formed, and really really sort of steals the show when he's on screen. You know, I, th- I think the the Davis and Goldblum sort of relationship carries the movie and is a great sort of central core for the film, but then you suddenly cut to Carey doing his stuff and you, you forget all about them for two minutes and just watch him being a, a, a whirlwind and a marvel. Well, it's the classic 80s comic relief, isn't it? It's the classic, like, oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the secondary character providing comic relief to the romance story. And let's let's not do Wayans down either, because he's he's really good in the film and he's he's sort of in there trying to compete. But when when you're up against Carey in that sort of form, you know, you, any any even Jeff Goldblum struggles, you know. I think it's a fun film, it's an enjoyable film, and I think as a capsule of 80s things, it works perfectly. I don't think it's the one that's gonna break Julian Temple as the next Hollywood big director. Not at all, and it didn't do. It didn't, it didn't do, no. And it, it, I don't think it did much for anyone's career, really, when you look at the, the cast. I mean, like Gina Davis, didn't she win the Oscar for um, Accidental Tourist? Yes, I think, I think you could be right. Period. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was the same year. So she had, in, in 87, she did like... So she was hot, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then ne- the, the, literally the next year, she did Beetlejuice which was a massive hit. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. she did The Accidental Tourist, which won the Oscar. Um, and then Earth Girls Are Easy came out. So it, it was on the back of two fairly big hits there. Yes, yeah. So really, there was no reason why this shouldn't have been a hit, even if it was just like bathing in the reflected glory of, of, of Davis's previous films. Don't, I don't know how it did in America. It, it sort of bombed a bit over here. People didn't understand it in this country. I think it bombed in America as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's 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 weird because I think in the UK it was perceived as being... We, we, we sort of wanted Temple to fail anyway because he, he made a perceived... Disaster of Absolute Beginners, mm-hmm. and um, and and then also I think I think the film just seemed a little bit too US centric for us, you know, and 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 what were what were eighties cliches in America hadn't 
work their way over to Scunthorpe, I don't think. You know, that was the thing, you know. It was just too colourful and too brash for us. But again, you know, time's done it a lot of favours and it's a great movie now, you know. And I, I, sen- I sense in your thinking there, Adam, and in some of the things you've referred to, I, I, I can sense you, your cinema programming head coming on and a, a, an, eight, an American 80s all night are starting to formulate. How are the dog buckaroo bands I and this at the core, the core of it? I think, well, I think, you know, I just think the 80s is, is very much, like, I, I, as I said earlier on, it's a decade where films that didn't get made in any other decade kind of got made in that decade because yeah, yeah. It, was, it was, I don't know whether it was Hollywood, uh, it's a sort of like, we don't know what we're doing period where they were taking chances that they wouldn't not have, have taken 15 years ago. That may well explain why Julian got a job there, you know. Sure, uh, yeah. I guess the other thing as well is that, is that filmmakers were having more access to other films. Yeah. You know, they were being able to see a lot more of the wealth of history. So Julian Temple's getting to see a lot of those 1950s and 60s British musicals that yeah. you wouldn't have been able to see unless you were there at the time. Whereas in the 80s, you started to get VHSs being released, you started to get a lot more of those films being recycled and re-put out. So then you started, your referencing in films started to become more acute, I guess. Yeah. But it felt like if you hadn't seen these films, it was nothing for you in some ways. Or, or at least that was a perceived, perceived yeah. vision of that, maybe. I, I, yeah. I don't know anything about being a valley girl, so like, I'm not going to enjoy Earth Girls Are Easy. It's like, everyone can enjoy valley girls. That's the whole point of the movie. Yeah, yeah. And and at heart, it's it's boy meets girl, you know, it's alien meets valley girl. And and that boils down to boy meets girl, which is a, a, a plot that we, we always love. So yeah, it's hard to do that wrong. But, but as we say, it didn't really do his career much good because he no, didn't direct no. another feature for a few years after that. Yeah. I wonder what Julian's career plan and motives were when did did he want to establish a career in features and would he have liked to have done that in britain would he have liked to have done that in hollywood because either way that didn't work out for him and he's really only made you know a a small handful i think they're only only the three films that we're talking about here comprise most of his sort of fiction film career you've got absolute beginners earth girls are easy and then in the mid 90s there's this weird crime drama gangster type thing called bullet yeah yeah absolutely yeah with mickey rock and uh it returned julian to his his template of utilizing pop performers in this case hip-hop performers with a two-pack shakur yeah which gives the film it's it's sort of whatever lasting cult status it has i think yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm just looking at his IMDb here, uh, and in between, <laughs> you think, oh, okay, I'll just go from Earth Girls Are Easy to his next film, Bullet. And in between that, uh, literally, he seems to be the hardest working man in music videos in between those <laughs> periods. He's directing, he's directing two or three music videos a year between then and 1996, you know with a whole manner of different artists as well. I mean, he continued to work with David Bowie and with Tim Machine. Yeah, yeah. But as, as we said before, he worked with Janet Jackson. He worked with Eric B and Rakim. He worked with uh, Rolling Stones again. He's worked with those multiple times. He directed the video for Everything I Do, I Do It For You by Brian Adams. And, you know, he just carried on, on and on and on. Duran Duran, Blur, even into the 90s, he was, he was, he was directing some of the Britpop people. 
Yeah. Now, I'm, I'm, sh- I'm sure Julian would have been getting some sort of artistic satisfaction out of all that, but that's, there's a sense with him that nagging at the back of his mind, he, he would have been working on a Duran Duran video or whatever and thinking, I'm making a little mini movie here and I've got a massive budget and I've got these huge pop stars working with me. This is great, but... I'd quite like to be pouring all of these resources into into a 100-minute movie. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he, 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 he did get the chance to sort of express himself artistically via the, the medium of, of sort of MTV. But I, I just get a feeling with him that he, he might have wanted more and that he, he, was, he wanted that call back to... Hollywood and real, real filmmaking. I don't know what you think, Adam. I don't mean it's, it's one, I guess it's more how we look at the music video. I think at the time, I think people people were talking about music videos as being the art form, you know, the art form of the music yeah, video. Yeah, and I think and a potential future maybe exactly. Yeah. You know, in the sense of like, well, you know, this is this is what the 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 eighties and the nineties are going to be about. It's going to be about the music video, and I don't think that's really happened. I think with the death of MTV, uh, you know, 15, 20 years ago, whatever it was now, it's kind of taken away the historical importance of a lot of those music videos. Yeah, yeah. Whereas at the time, like I said, at the time, the budgets were big, ridiculous budgets. For some oh, they of these were. It videos, was movie, you know? movie level, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You've got an hour-long video for, for um, ABC. Yeah, Mantra, yeah. an hour-long. <laughs> like, you know, what were the 80s thinking? Um, yeah, but, yeah. You know, and now looking back on it, you, no one thinks about, no one looks back on it and goes, "Oh yeah, th- this is this is a great document of the 1980s." They probably should. People don't they don't look at back at those at those pop videos as artistically important. I don't think. No, they they've they I think they've aged pretty well as are, but I don't think I don't think they've aged in terms of respect and the way that people view them. They've become a little bit forgotten, I think, or dismissed. Yeah, because I remember at the time, you know, people, Martin Scorsese directing Bad for Michael Jackson. Yes. Oh, you know, it's yeah, like yeah. These, these are, this is an important art form. We've got great directors directing it. I don't think that's held up over the years. So maybe oh, like yeah. at the time, Julian's thinking, actually, this is my legacy. I'm making all these great videos that in 30 years' time, people are going to look back on as great films. Uh, yeah, as, yeah. as mini movies, as, as as the art form of the eighties and nineties, and yeah, I just don't. Sadly, I don't think that's 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 come through. Yeah, ironically, is he going to be more, he's going to be known more for his absolute beginners than he is going to be known for um, his his pop videos? Yeah, which, which probably was was never the plan for him. You know, yeah, no. yeah, you're you're right. Yeah, so he does this weird movie, Bullet, in the mid nineties. The film, one of the writers of the film is credited as Sir Eddie Cook, which is a fantastic name. And that turns out to be a pseudonym for Mr. Mickey Rourke. So this is obviously a very personal project for him. I don't want to sound dismissive here, but I'm going to call it a pound shop gangster rap crime movie, you know. But put that in perspective, I would also call Walter Hill's Trespass a pound shop gangster rap crime movie, and I would call Training Day the, the same. And I okay. think they're both great movies, and they both got cinema release. And Training Day won the best actor Oscar, you know. So yeah, I, I'm not using that as as a dismissive term, but I'm using it as a descriptive one because this does come over as sort of 
ten in um, in one sense, it's like ten a penny. There are a million of these films out there. It's white white guy in a hood, you know, getting involved with criminals. Um, lots of drug taking, lots of shady deals, lots of characters mooching about warehouses, lots of graffiti. But as with Walter Hill, um, as with um, Training Day, Antoine Fuqua, that was, wasn't it? Um, yeah. Julian does a great job on this. He makes a really interesting film. And it's a good vehicle for Mickey Raw, you know, as, as a sort of personal project. It's, it's a very good sort of vehicle for him. It's very, very um, notable, as you say, for having Tupac in it because um, yeah. it turns it into a cult movie instantly. And, and the film, of course, came out. Yeah, it came out two months after he he, he was killed. Um, so it had all the ingredients to be a massive hit, really. Yeah, you know, yeah. In that period, um, people upset and desperate to see more Tupac um, and they, you know, they just lost him. And like we said, there's only a handful of Tupac films. You know, there's not like, yeah. he wasn't the most prolific of actors in, in features, but he was just starting to break in. He'd done things like um, Above the Rim, Poetic Justice, um, yeah. Juice being one of the big ones from that early period. Um, and he just started to move out beyond the sort of like Boys in the Hood, gangster neighbourhood things into into more plot lines, not not that far away from that in this particular movie, uh, but with with more like the story based stuff. So he'd done like plot based stuff, like crime plot with this with Bullet, and then he also did the one with uh, with Tim Roth called Gridlocks, which wouldn't come yes. out the following year, which is actually a really good, really good film. But yeah, but there's, for me, there's not much. I remember watching this film when it came out; it was a big hit on video. Uh, it was, yeah. you know, it but it was, it's, that sort, it's that sort of movie, as I say. Exactly. It, it is. If it wasn't straight to video, it sort of ought to have been, but then deserved to be a success on video because it's it, it's it's very much of that type. It's, it's good of that kind, you know. The thing that really impressed me about it, I, I like Adrian Brody in it as as, yeah. um, as Mickey Rourke's brother. The, the the brother they've got in the attic. This is the horror movie fan in me coming out. You know, Ted Levine's character is the weirdo in the attic. And my God, Mickey Rourke's part should be the show part in the movie. And Ted Levine just comes on and he, he goes method on it. You know, it's, it's just fantastic. You can't take your eyes off him. Uh, he's got this little pet rat that he sort of plays around with, you know. He's he's obviously sort of doing ad-libbing and doing all kinds of weird little shtick, you know. And he's he's fantastic. I, I love him. I, I think he 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 becomes, for me, what the reason why I'm watching the film more more than the basic plot, you know. I I, I want I want to see more of him in it. And of course, that that feeds into the film's ending, where we, we, you know, not not to give anything away, but Ted Ted plays a big part unexpectedly in in the film's finale. So it does, however, have a real lack of Julian Temple's stylistic quirks that you would expect to see in one of yeah, his movies had yeah. you only seen his eighties films. Yeah, there was it's very generic. In... Yeah, yeah, and it's not it's not it's not colourful either. No, not at all. It's uh, that's that's stood out for me as well. We watch Absolute Beginners, Earth Girls Are Easy. It's a riot of colour, and then it, this is very much sort of like 
casting shadows, dark muted colours. It's not really... Not a Julian choice either. He's, he's just imitating what's been done in other films that are like it. Yeah. I mean, in that way, it, it reflects the genre that it's being made in. Yeah, yeah. You don't want that from Julian. You want Julian Temple to make a Julian Temple film, you know. You yeah. want that colour, you want that explosion. There's there's occasions where it tries to break out here, you know. The, the the scenes in the nightclubs, there's a great scene where there's dialogue going on at a table, important dialogue between two major characters at a table, but it's, a, it, it's in the distance, it's in the background of the scene. And what Julian shows us in the foreground is dancers shimmying and shaking, you know, and moving back and forward across the screen. And there's music playing, and it's great. You know, it's again, it's not the colours are a bit muted, but the sense is there that this is a scene that is like something that could have been in Absolute Beginners. It's so hard to to watch in a sense, in in that you you're enjoying the scene for what it is, but you're thinking, if Julian had been given his head here, this could have been so much more. There is that sense of him being a little bit neutered here. Whereas Ted Levine isn't, Ted Levine is off the leash, you know, and 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 you wish Julian could have been a little bit more on this. Maybe, maybe Mickey Rourke's calling the shots, I don't know. Possibly, possibly. Maybe it was more of a higher job. Maybe it was difficult production, but but, uh, but it's, a, it's a good little film. It's, it's good of its kind, and, you know, we don't want to do it down, and it's got great things in it. Yeah, so let's move on uh, to our final film. Uh, that we're going to talk about is Glastonbury, the 2006 documentary about Glastonbury. Um, yeah. In between Bullet and the 10 years in between Bullet, um, I think he he was a bit suddenly became fairly prolific. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, from having like a massive gap from, from Earth Girls Are Easy to, to Bullet, he directed three films in the 10 years. He directed Vigo, A Passion for Life. He directed the Filth and Fury documentary, which we've already talked about, and he directed Pandemonium in 2000. So he suddenly had got a little bit of a, like, come on, let's get me, get me, get me a finger at him, start making some movies. So maybe it was that itch that, had been, that hadn't been scratched from making so many um, hot videos and having to do things to certain blueprints. Um, yeah. Gave him a bit of a, 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 a desire to, to, to get back into filmmaking. But I think what we really need to talk about here, Adam, is to use Glastonbury as, as a way in to talk about how Julian, I think in the 21st century, wouldn't you agree, he's found his forte or he's found one thing that he likes doing, which is returning again and again and again, and again to, to music themes, to themes of modern music and presenting them in a documentary style and presenting them as a part of long form British history, you know, yeah. saying that Dr. Feelgood and Joe Strummer and the Kinks and Wilco Johnson, they've they've got they've got interesting stories to tell and they've got their interesting stories that he can tell about them. But he sets that within not only the period of British history that they existed in and bringing that up to date, but also going back and looking at past politics and past social situations and um, depicting these pop heroes of his as historical figures in the great British landscape and Glastonbury is almost a perfect starting point for that because you know the, the Glastonbury festival has always sort of pitched itself 
in terms of just just through its location more than anything you know in terms of ancient britain and ancient british history you know and uh, and bringing that into the modern era and julian's all over that in his films and yeah. this this film in particular is great. I, I think it uh, it captures Glastonbury at a time when it was just starting to get a little bit commercial, but it hadn't it hadn't tipped over. And you hadn't got people like Tom Watson going to it then, you know, and Ed Balls and people like that. You know, it was still had remnants of what it used to be, you know. And I think Julian captured it just at the right moment in two thousand and six. He he feeds into this film the idea that things are changing. There are stories about the, the travelling community not being quite so welcome as they once were, and Michael Evis, who was matey with them and always invited them onto the site and, and had a relationship with them where if the travellers worked on site, he would allow them into the festival for free and that sort of thing, or if they picked up litter and, and so on. You know. and, and suddenly that relationship seems to have got a little bit more fractious and that's depicted in the documentary. There's also the um, unrelated to that. You've got the idea that um, other groups of people are starting to break into the festival for free. And so, again, a little bit under protest, under pressure from the local council, Michael Evis has to erect this enormous security fence. And Julian not only shows us the plans for that fence and, and, and the, the, the physical object itself, but he shows us how people are trying to get around it and how they're still trying to break in. And he also spends a night out with the security guys and he's sort of driving around the perimeter of the fence with a very, very typical bouncer-like British security team, you know, and it's sort of starting to show us the other side of Glastonbury, you know, the side that isn't all hippy-dippy and isn't necessarily adhering to Michael and the Evis family's original intent. But, yeah, it's a fascinating documentary. Great use of, as always with Julian, as in all his punk and music documentaries, brilliant use of old news footage and old shots of politicians and scenes of... of British disasters and so on. He's he's obviously got this mountain of, of um, sort of old footage, library of old footage that you can go and play with. And he always manages to bring it into films like Glastonbury. The um, the Doctor Feelgood documentaries, the two, the, the Feelgood one, Oil City Confidential, and then the, the solo one that he did with Wilco Johnson are great for this because they note that Wilco was actually born about four or five years before the other members of Dr. Feelgood. And so he was five or six when a massive flood hit Canvey Island and everyone had to sort of go up on the roofs of their houses. And he's showing footage, newsreel footage of this, but then getting Wilco to talk about it, you know, because it would have been like his earliest memory. And, um, and the other members of Dr. Feelgood would have been like, a year old or six months old when this was happening. So they've heard all about this disaster sort of second or third hand through the family. But Wilco, it's like his formative years. He was like six when it happened, you know. And uh, Julian's great at using old newsreel footage and old local history and things like that. He does it in the Pistols films, you know. He does it in the Joe yeah. Strummer yeah. But it's great in Glastonbury. It's really, really good how he uses... Um, old footage and one one technique that he did in the film was he got other people to send in their film footage from previous festivals and then this then becomes an editing job for him 
And again, this seemed to be something that he loves, is stitching bits of film together and juxtaposing bits of film. You know, he can tell a story through an edit. I think he was filming there. The year he filmed there mainly was 2003, I think, and the film came out in 2006. And he makes the 2003 Glastonbury Festival look like a sequel to Mad Max. (laughs) He's got all these crazy cars and people in weird costumes and so on. And he picks out these strange figures, like there's... um, there's, there's, there's someone who's dressed dressed as a bride and she's sort of wandering around the field shouting at people, the wedding's off, the wedding's off. And he doesn't explain this. He doesn't tell you what her story is. He doesn't stop her and interview her. Like if someone was making a documentary now or if the BBC was covering the festival now, they'd stop these people and they'd say, because they're still there, these, these you know, figures like this still go to Glastonbury, but they'd be stopped on camera. You know, you'd get Lauren Laverne or somebody trying to explain to the viewer what's going, what's your story? Why are you dressed like this? Julian doesn't tell us. He just lets us see these figures, people dressed as giant penguins and stuff, you know, people holding up weird signs. And... We never find out their story. I guess that's the filmmaker in him, isn't it? In the sense that he's like, you're creating a myth about Glastonbury. And yeah. if you have someone in a in a wedding dress walk around their weddings off, weddings off, and then you get Lauren Laverne explaining why she's doing that, it kind of ruins the myth. Exactly. The myth is there, having these characters wandering around, interacting. And I think Julian gets that. He gets yeah. that it's, it's much about the audience. As yeah. it is about the acts on stage, Glasson. Yeah. He treats the acts in a very similar way in the film. He just shows you a brief glimpse of them, 30 seconds, a minute of their performance, doesn't tell you who they are, doesn't feel the need to tell you. They're just all part of the overall flow, you know, and it's it's, it's brilliant the way it's done. Yeah, and like you say, it, it, it does. it is, is a period of Glastonbury, those early 2000s, mid-2000s, where... It was changing, and it was. Yeah, I mean, it's, literally, it's in flux. Yeah, 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 and also like just the types of artists that got to play Glastonbury. Um, you know, in in two thousand and six, when this came out, you've got like your, your stereotypical Paul Weller type acts on stage. Two years later, you've got Jay Z headlining. To, yeah. to a lot of controversy, thinly veiled racism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but that's the that's that's the way. Glastonbury was going, it was broadening what it perceived as major acts and important acts. Um, yeah. So you had Jay-Z and you got Kanye and you got all these different like people that hadn't played Glastonbury before suddenly become headlining and he captures that that mood. When when it is Jay-Z, you can sort of go with it and you can sort of say, yeah, I can see what Michael Evis is doing here. He's, he's, he's keeping pace with the times, you know. It's when... You, you, we're now in sort of 2020 and uh, there's no festival this year, but um, I can imagine the 20s headliners and what they're going to be like. And it's going to be another shift on from that. And it does seem to be getting more and more broadly commercial and losing sight a little bit of what it was. And I think Julian's film is almost made at the perfect time because he can tell the entire story. And he almost, he almost does sort of start predicting the, the future of the event as well, not necessarily in terms of acts, but in terms of how it might become more commercialised. He focuses on the security fence in particular. Again, doesn't doesn't tell you anything. There's no voiceover commentary or anything, but the impression you get as a viewer from looking at those stark images of this fence are 
this festival's not quite what it was, you know, it's, 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 it's losing its way a little bit, it's, it's losing sight of why it started in the first place. But also, is it saying that music isn't quite what it was as well? Maybe. You know, maybe is the music maybe. industry so much more commercial now? Julian obviously thinks so, because the subjects he's covered in his documentaries since have been people like Dr. Feelgood. He's not made a film about the kinks, but weirdly, this is Julian all over and how he sort of treats his subjects. He never made a film about the kinks, but he made one about Ray Davis, and then the following year he made one about Dave Davis. That's mm. how he works. you know. But the fact that he's covering artists like that, rather than thinking about going back to Glastonbury or doing anything more about that, I think tells you where his sympathies lie in terms of what's happening to music. I think when you spend the early 2000s directing S Club 7 videos, it can tend to warp, <laughs> your, warp your vision of, of, of music, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess so. Cool. OK, shall we draw our line under Julian Temple there, Daryl? I, I think that's Julian done, yeah, yeah. It, we have got interesting things to look forward to, though, from Julian Temple. He's uh, working on a uh, Shane McGowan documentary. Yeah. Which would be fascinating. And he's also working on a biography of uh, Marvin Gaye. So two very interesting subjects with fascinating life stories uh, bringing to the screen. So we shall look forward to that, I think. Cool. Lovely. Thank you very much, Daryl. Um, I hope people are going to go out and track down Julian Temple's stuff. Earth Girls Are Easy. Go for it. you love it. I think there's lots of interesting stuff out there if you want to delve into Julian Temple's uh, career, which ironically is also a career documenting the history of British music as well, in some ways, a certain strategy. So thank you very much, Daryl, and we'll speak to you soon. Yeah, thanks for listening, folks. Hope you enjoy it.